Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of the Society for the History of Children and Youth podcast. My name is Christine Alexander, and I'm the Canada Research Chair in Child and Youth Studies at the University of Lethbridge, uh, which is on Blackfoot Terry territory uh, in southern Alberta, Canada. Um, and at the U of L, I'm also an associate professor in the history department and director of the Institute for Child and Youth Studies. So I'm really, really pleased today to be speaking with Shal Barhayam about his book, The Maternalists. Psychoanalysis, Motherhood, and the British Welfare State, which was published by University of Pennsylvania Press in 2021. Shaw is a senior lecturer in the Department of Sociology at the University of Essex. He's a specialist in the intellectual and cultural history of psychoanalysis and related psi disciplines uh, in 20th century Britain primarily. And he's published articles in journals, including uh, History Workshop Journal, History of the Human Sciences, and Psychoanalysis and History. So uh, I should also mention that just in case you thought one book in 2021 coming out was more than enough, um, he actually had two <laughs> come out last year. Um, the second volume uh, was a book that is called Wild Analysis from the Couch to Cultural and Political Life that he co-edited with Elizabeth Sarah Coles and Helen Tyson. Um, and that one published last year by Routledge. Um, I did some Googling and it looks really, really interesting as well. And I can see connections between the themes of that volume and what you talk about in the maternalists as well. So thank you for being here. Thank you very much, Christine, for inviting me and for this lovely introduction. Thank you. The Maternalists begins with an anecdote about you shopping for beer <laughs> and being struck by the fact that the label on one of the uh, on one of the cans of beer was, you know, craft beer was nanny state beer. And then and so living as I do, living and working as I do in Canada, where until relatively recently, uh, Ottawa, our national capital, was paralyzed by essentially by a convoy of protesters who were unhappy about government-imposed vaccine and mask mandates. Um, this, it turns out that this book, while it is about the interwar years and the post-war period in Britain, it has also given me some tools to think about the ways in which the state and its efforts to protect citizens in the midst of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic has, yeah, gets characterized and thought about. So first of all, thank you for that. And I hope that one day I will get to try Nanny State beer. Yeah, um, well, it's not, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> okay, maybe, yeah, 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 maybe I can live without it. 
So, so the first question that I would like to ask you, Shawl, is just essentially kind of by, by way of intellectual background, could you tell us a little more about your, yeah, your interests, your academic background, and the process that led you to conduct the research that ultimately led to the maternalists? Yeah, so, um, you know, this is as it happens with, with those books that you are working on them for for so many years, it's um, um it's it's kind of you know I was always kind of um, taking it not very seriously when people were saying you know I was working on this book for ten years, I was kind of come on you know don't but but then but then you realize that that it you know since the moment that you really started to think about the project and until it was published you know so so more than ten years passed. Um, and when I started it, it was actually, um, I was starting my PhD, so it came out from my PhD. Um, I came, I study my background, I study uh, history and philosophy. Um, but I was always very much interested uh, for many years, um, I had this interest in psychoanalysis. Um, on, on in, I, I was interested in the clinical aspects, but also in the theoretical aspects. Um, but I never actually, I never, I mean, I, I always had to say that, that, um, that no, I'm a historian actually, I'm really a historian. I'm not a, I'm not a therapist, I'm not a clinician. I don't, I don't have any background in this. I'm not treating anyone. Um, and, but I try to, to, to bring those interests together and, and then I came to do this um, this PhD in London, um, and my initial idea was that um, that I, I want to I want to study psychoanalysis mainly in Britain, um, as um, not necessarily as a as as a clinical theory uh, or another psychological discipline, but also as uh, as a, you know, as a, as almost, I wouldn't say ideology because I don't think that, I don't know if psychoanalysis was an ideology in, in, in some, you know, in, in some periods in the 20th century, but, but yes, as, as something that is kind of a movement that, that is, that we need to understand um, more widely than, um, than uh, just a, just as kind of a discipline of treatment. Um, and there's something that influenced um, uh, tremendously the, the, you know, big events in the 20th century, um, all of, you know, all over the globe. But I was focusing on the, on on Britain, and I had, I, I think I had some good reasons for that. Like uh, the British School of Psychoanalysis was quite um, dominant in the in in since the 1930s, as I, um, as I'm showing in the book. Um, but uh, there were many famous, uh, still famous psychoanalysts came out of it, like you know Donald Winnicott and Bowlby and others. Um, I also interested. Uh, I had this interest in um, in the work of Shandor Ferenczi, a less known uh, psychoanalyst um, who worked in Hungary, and he was, you know, there were, in many respects he was he was a non-Freudian or counter-Freudian or you name it. Um, and I think that. Um, I, I was also I was I thought to show how um, how he served as kind of a, a, 
um, shadow figure to, to the movement in Britain. But all that, it, it was all kind of in the air and it was all kind of, um, you know, like you start a PhD project and things are, you know, you have some good ideas, but, but, but you don't really have a, a strong argument. Like what, okay, what do you want to say about all that? It's, it's nice. And also I, I wasn't the first to look at psychoanalysis as, as a, the psychoanalytic movement as a political movement in a sense. Um, and then in my third year, um, something quite tragic happened. My my mother passed away quite um, quite uh, suddenly, and um, it was it was you know obviously it was quite shocking. And um, I took a few I took I took a short break. It was it was supposed to be you know it, it wasn't supposed to be short break, but but after a few weeks, so you know, I think two months, I I felt like you know the right thing to do for me was actually going back to um to the archives, to um you know to the to um to to my research, and um, and especially to um to the archives that I looked that I um I, I should have said that I that what I did was I didn't look at um, necessarily. At, Clinical archives. Some of them were are not accessible, but I also I less interested in 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 some clinical debates. You know, what I did was looking at them. Um, at I, I was looking for for um, public intellectuals or educationalists, um, academic social scientists who um, who 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 um, who use the psychoanalytic language in a sense. Um, in the 1920s and since the 1920s and up until the 1950s in Britain, um, and and so I looked at some of those archives. Um, but again, I didn't I didn't know how to. There was some very interesting stuff there, but I didn't know how to to bring them together. And then when I when I came back to look at, at, at the same materials, I just looked at uh, I just read the you know letters and. Um, and uh, you know, and some some uh, referrals of um, of, uh, of of psychoanalysts to, to one to another, uh, but also some uh, some educational um, you know the, um, some some articles some some works of educationalists anthropologists, all those people. But then suddenly, I I I, I could find mothers everywhere. So I looked at the I looked at the at those places and I realized that the one thing that um, that these people were were very preoccupied with was motherhood was mothers motherhood and the maternal the this this the maternal which is something is a kind of a concept that that is quite um, you know uh, it's quite vague it's it's kind of a, a, a kind of a mental side or psychosocial side that, that people project all their their, their fantasies and anxieties and all the collective anxieties and um, and so I so I found this group of of, of public intellectuals of, of of artists of authors very preoccupied with mothers and I wasn't sure if if it was a kind of me more still mourning my mother uh, and therefore I can find mothers everywhere or is it really that that they were quite of um, interested in in mothers in a, in a way that was that that needs further investigation um 
And and I'm still not sure, by the way. You know, I, I'm still, it's kind of, it's an open question, but I think I managed at, at that point, I managed to make the case or to make an argument that, um, that in many respects, the crisis of the 90, of mid of mid century um, Britain, mid century Europe, um, the, the, the you know the 1930s to the until to the you know the 19 the interwar period the 1930s, um, the crisis of fascism and the post-war um, were perceived by many people as a crisis of motherhood, um, and this is what I was trying to write about. Um, so, yes, I mean, I can, I can keep talking, but maybe I'll, I'll you know, I want it to be a discussion, so maybe. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. Well, I have to say that that's, that's a really fascinating and moving origin story for this particular book. And, you know, hearing you say that you were suddenly seeing mothers everywhere right after losing your own mother. Um, so I have to say that having read the book without knowing this origin story, one of the things that really I thought was noteworthy was the way in which you had managed to, you convinced me that there really were mothers everywhere. And I think, and one of the things that I really liked about this book was the way in which in each chapter, so as you said, there are these bigger, there it's all of this is happening against this backdrop of kind of, you know, the development of psychoanalysis, um, it's kind of um, growth uh, in Britain in particular, but then the aftermath of the First World War, the growth of fascism, uh, the Second World War, uh, and all of the stuff with evacuation and those concerns about what that did to kids that led to folks like uh, John Bowlby. But at the same time, there's interesting stuff happening about uh, the about contest contesting colonialism, anthropology, these kind of cosmopolitan Europeans who are moving around and being analyzed and studying at different places. So in front of all of that, you present us with a series of individual human beings of characters who that you use to then show us different places in which mothers broadly construed, really were everywhere. And so I'm wondering if you might tell us a little bit more about some of the people that you write about in the book. Yeah, so, um, so this, I mean, I think I managed to, at the end, it, it looks a bit like, like kind of a network of people that, that, that knew each other, at least knew each other's work. Even though they were not, they were not kind of uh, necessarily um, uh, doing the same job. So Susan Isaacs, for example, who was a very known educationalist, one of the founder of the Institute of, of Education, but then also a very uh, central psychoanalyst, a Kleinian psychoanalyst. And actually, it's she's an interesting case because. Um, because you tell you talk to educationalists, so they tell you, "Oh, I didn't know she was a psychoanalyst." And you talk to psychoanalysts, they say, "Oh, really? Was she the one of the leaders of the Institute of Education in London?" For um, and then I found then I found out that she was also there was something quite um, um, you know important for her was was the 
Um, she was kind of an anti-colonial, I wouldn't say activist, but yeah, in a sense, I mean, she was, she was thinking that she was a, at least a critique, an early critique of developmental psychology from a, from a, this, uh, I wouldn't say post-colonial because it wasn't a post-colonial perspective, but from a colonial perspective. Um, and she, you know, she had a quite a, a famous debate at the time with Jean Piaget when she, um, when she's basically uh, telling him, look, you are kind of uh, a, your, your, your centric position just, um, just wouldn't allow you to, to see, um, to see how, um, how racist all this discipline is. Um, now, she in herself wasn't, um, wasn't actually one of the maternalists that I'm talking about. Um, maybe we can talk about it later, but many of the maternalists that I'm, that, that, you know, the maternalists that, that, you know, there is something ironic about this, this title because there are many, many of them are men, right? Um, but um, I think I was trying to, uh, to bring her into the discussion because, um, because I think she was, um, she was quite important in, um, in, um, she was very influenced by, um, by the anthropological literature at, at the time, um, which um, which was uh, which was very much preoccupied with questions of um, of motherhood and especially motherhood in the uh, in in you know in in the non-European the non-European mother or the so-called primitive mother. Um, now, um, for for some other figures in in the book like. Uh, uh, Branislav Malinowski or Giza Royam, you know, the great um, um, anthropologist. So their project was actually um, to revalue the idea of the primitive. They didn't think of, uh, they thought that primitive, they tried to idealize um, and we would say today exoticize, I would say, um, the, the primitive and especially the primitive mother. Um, Giza Royam was, um, was basically he was uh, one of the first, maybe the first anthropologist who was also a psychoanalyst. He was Hungarian, but he had a, a close connection in them um, with um, with psychoanalysts and anthropologists in the UK. Um, and he was sent to um, um, he was sent to Central Australia um, with um, with a very specific mission. Um, he was um, the psychoanalytic movement was very upset with with Malinowski's um, argument or, or suggestion that the Oedipus complex um, is it wouldn't imply wouldn't wouldn't work in in a, in matriarchal society or matrilineal societies, um, while the Freudians of course suggested wanted to think that the Oedipus complex is a is a universal um, um, theory, right? So he was he was sent to. Um, um, to Central Australia, which is um, um, which was the closest place that he imagined as being, as a, you know, as place which which may have uh, something that is like um, matrilineal um, um, indigenous people, um, and he wanted to show that they have the, a different but still an Oedipus complex. And they had this um, this, this this debate, Troyam and um, and Malinowski, 
But as I show in the book, they basically, they were totally, um, they, they were in total agreement about the question of the primitive mother. They, they were kind of, they thought so-called primitive mother. They thought that, um, um, that um, there, was also, there was first of all kind of um, an anti-modern argument that, that comes from, from both writers. Um, they idealized this, um, this form of life um, and specifically for um, uh, the idea that, um, that uh, what happens in these patriarchal societies is that um, you cannot find uh, sadism, okay? So sadism is something that, that you can find in the West, but not in, in, in places where, where mothers or maternal values are the dominant ones. Um, and and they, they were actually in agreement about it, uh, Malinovsky and Roam. Um, and another agreement that I found between the two of them was that um, that they can use this imagine because it was an imagined primitive mother. So, for example, uh, they couldn't they couldn't recognize basically that in some of those places, uh, you know, the indigenous people suffered from suffered from hung from hunger and from you know they were in a very bad situation. So they were they just saw what they wanted to see. Um, but they also realized that they can use this this imagined primitive mothers to um, to explain um, to explain European fascism. So European fascism emerged for them because um, because basically um, Western mothers are not good enough. They don't. They they lost this uh, innocence, this this natural way of mothering that you can find in places like Central Australia. So there is kind of actually something very um, misogynistic about this claim. You know, it's kind of it's it kind of, it's part of a tradition of bashing mothers. You know, and and um, which we can find in you know, you know, ever since. Um, so um, so this is one way for me to show to by by by. by um, presenting this debate, but also this agreement between Malinowski and Gizaroyam, um, it it was a way for me to show how they, um, how people who were not um, were not directly connected to to the psychoanalytic discourse um, use this new psychoanalytic vocabulary in order to say something about. Um, um, about motherhood, about domestic life, about colonialism, about uh, about the non-European or the way that they imagine the non-European, and about the way that they understand um, and they, they explain violence in in in, in Europe and in, in mass violence and you know fascism and in totalitarianism in in Europe, in North America, you know, in in the Western world, right? Um, so yeah, so this is these are the three main. Uh, figures of the first part of the book, you know, Susan Isaacs, um, Roya Malinowski, um, and and then you know it's 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 still a history book. So from the 1930s, it moves to the <laughs> to the 1940s with other figures. Yes, absolutely. So I am just uh, raptly listening. So I, yeah. So why don't you tell us then about the second part of the book and okay, what you have? I will. Um, 
so then the, we have the, the fourth chapter, which is about um, Scottish psychiatrists, um, which, um, which died very, very young um, and published, um, published one book um, with the great title, uh, The Origins of Love and Hate. Uh, this person was, um, his name was Ian Sati. And um, he was, um, he worked for a few years. Um, he came from, uh, he moved from, he and his wife, um, Jane Sati moved from, from Glasgow to, um, to London where they worked in the, in the Tavistock Institute. And Sati, Sati was, was an interesting guy. He, um, he couldn't find himself. He was a, he was a, um, a major critic of Freud and he couldn't find himself in the, um, in, in the Psychoanalytic Institute in London. Um, and, but he wasn't, um, he wasn't, he was a very, he was very specific in his critique of Freud. Um, he thought that, um, that Freud, he he was in many respe many respects. He was as I'm as I'm showing in the book. He was quite influenced by Chandor Ferenczi, these Hungarian guys that I um, that I mentioned before, um, who was very close to Freud for a long time. But then they had a fallout, and um, and and in I think that you know there are still debates about it. But I think Ferenczi and Freud um, it, did present different understanding of what psychoanalysis is or could be. And, um, and Ferenczi was much more interested or, or at least could provide them much more detailed theory of motherhood than Freud. Freud was very preoccupied with, with fathers. Um, and this is where it met Sati because Sati was a, was a harsh critique of, um, of the Oedipus complex. Um, he thought that um, this is basically um, this is um, um, at best a good description of patriarchy and the patriarchal society, um, and um, and that Freud Freud celebrated rather than than challenging it, um, and he very much idealized the maternal relationship with um, uh, of, of the mother. Um, and the uh, and the baby, he said that in this debate between um, nature and nurture, so the only um, basic instinct that that we have is the um, um, the only natural instinct that we have is the the instinct to be nurtured, right? So he was very much an environmentalist. He thought that the environment is much more crucial to the development of the child, but specifically that. Um, that the relationship with the mother are, are the are the crucial ones, um, and he was a great influence on John Bowlby. John Bowlby admired him. He was neglected after he, he died very young, um, so um, so only in the last um, I would say twenty years um, we we can see more and more writings, more and more literature about Sati, but but still not enough, um, and. But again, it's it's a bit like like the like in the case of um, of Malinowski and Roham, um, there are a lot of all sorts of an idealizations that comes from the from the fact that these are men, and not men men who are writing or try to imagine what is it to be, um, not even what is it to be a mother, but what is this maternal? So it's 
it's so this, the book is a bit about about male fantasies of, of what is the maternal what is motherhood right um and if you look you know if if you read sati very closely so he's he's, he's quite a reactionary he's he, he again he's um, he's not um, uh, nostalgic about the, the so-called primitive uh, mother that you can find in, um, in places like Central Australia. He's thinking more of um, he, he was interested in, in uh, pre-modern mythologies. He was he was um, reading a lot of stuff about the, about the pagan culture, um, and there is something quite. Um, Quite, quite interesting to read it. Uh, like he's, he's very enthusiastic. Um, he's mixing. He's you know he's mixing all sorts of of, of things and literature and and um, and um, and geographical places and, um, and and different times. So for him, everything that is not European or not modern, either or, is fine. Like you know, Egypt, Greece. Um, uh, the Nord, you know, he's kind of he's mix and match. He's mixing and matching. Yeah. Um, and but but when you when you when you look at it more closely, he would he would say that um, that um, the one thing that is missing in modern life is that women should go back to um, to specialize in 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 domestic life, basically. You know, um, so it's not it's not a great um, you know. It's not that innovative in many respects, um, and it's not you know. Bolby himself was accused, of course, of you know, of of using psychoanalysis in in order to restore some old um, traditional gender roles in Britain after the war. Um, so it's it's in a, in a sense it's not a surprise that he was so much influenced by Sati, um, but. I think the one thing that is is quite interesting in Sati's work is the is is the idea that um, regression um, is a good thing. So we uh, we tend to think of regression as something quite pathological. We look at at, uh, at you know at some mental states and we're saying about those people that they act quite regressively, etc., etc. But um, but Sati thought like Ferenczi that that people all the time are, are having this kind of regressive states. And the one thing that makes it worse is that they are all the time being denounced for, for this regressive state. So we just need to accept it more. So he was, um, there, he has the old theory of regression that I'm talking about, I'm, I'm, I'm describing in the book. Um, so this is Sati. Um, he was a reader of Roam. He didn't agree with many of his stuff, but, um, <laughs> or maybe, no, sorry, the other way around. Um, mm. Roam was, but I'm just saying it because to show that, you know, they, they knew each other, all those people in one way or another. Yeah. Um, and then it brings us to, if, if we still have the time for that. Absolutely, absolutely. To the last two chapters, which the first one is, is um, is is um, is about Donald Winnicott, and here we, I, is it, it's basically the first chapter in the book where I'm talking about someone who is is kind of more familiar mm. um, to um, to to um, to everyone. Winnicott is quite known figure beyond psychoanalysis, 
Um, but um, but I'm actually in the book in the in the chapter of, on Winnicott. I'm not. Um, I don't necessarily um, look at, at at Winnicott as a psychoanalyst, but more as um, um, at, he he. I'm using some of his archives to. Um, so basically, I'm reading some case studies that he supervised um, after the war. Um, and and during the war, but also after the war, and um, and one of the there are quite a lot of interesting things that I I found there. I think, but but the one thing that I I want to mention is that um, um, that you you can barely so basically he was a child psychoanalyst. Mm -hmm. And he was supervising other analysts who um, who dealt with children in East London mainly, yeah. um, from 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 difficult backgrounds. Um, and the one thing you cannot find there are fathers. So um, so I think that the title of the book, if I here's the book by the way, um, the title of the book of the chapter is uh, what about father which is one of the paper that he published um and and it's very hard to find them father so some of them um some of them were not around some of them just came back from the war and and you 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 can read the correspondences between the mother and and the analyst and the mother and the headmaster and the mother and the teacher and and sometimes you can find fathers intervene. So, for example, fathers fathers don't like the child going to see a therapist. So the therapist or the, the analyst. So the analyst and the mother are thinking together of how to continue with this father's opinion. So the fathers is considers as kind of an obstacle, right? Okay, the father wouldn't like um, the child to continue. What what are we doing now? Maybe it's better to to stop. Maybe we can convince him nevertheless but there is kind of a collusion of the mother with state agents all sorts of state agents but kind of a dismissal of of, of fathers and the and the, the paternal role and it's quite interesting also um, from the perspective of the history of psychoanalysis because we have we have freud who who gave us this very um paternal i would say um or, no, I don't think. I, personally, I don't think that. Um, maybe it's not the right definition, paternal theory. But he was very preoccupied with with fathers, right? And the Oedipus yeah. complex yeah. is very father oriented. Yeah. Then we have um, we have kind of in the history of psychoanalysis a backlash already in the 30s, um, where we have um, you know female analysts, but not only female. Um, in Hungary, in Germany, in New York at the time, in Britain, Melanie Klein, um, um, Karen Horney, others um, who challenged Freud uh, about his, uh, you know, about his uh, very um, poor account of, of femininity, of female sexuality, and of motherhood. Um, but for all of them, fathers are still are still there but but a situation where a group of analysts or, or a group of of um, 
of, so, of social workers who are influenced by psychoanalysts, of, by psychoanalysis, um, are dealing with, um, with or treating children without, without having this, this paternal voice somewhere in the back of their mind is, is, is quite interesting for me. It, it was quite interesting for me to, um, to, um, to recognize it and, um, and to think of, uh, you know, what, what are the implications of that? Because we are, we, we've been, um, I mean, we, we used to think of the, of the, and for good reasons, of the, um, of the welfare state of the post 1945 moment as as um, quite in Britain, but also elsewhere, as quite um, uh, arguably at least um, um, progressive mm -hmm. uh, in economic term, but but conservative um, in terms of domestic life and you know and generals etc etc. I remember. Um, Sally Alexander, who, who read this book, said to me once, um, historian Sally Alexander, of course, yes. who oh, yeah. one of the great historians of motherhood in, in the UK. And Absolutely. yeah, so she and so she she told me once, um, it's um, after she read a, a draft of this book, she said, um, I'm split because your account is very convincing, mm. but as someone who lived at the time, it was all so patriarchal, you know. Yeah. Um, so, um, but she still thought that there was that there is a whole kind of um, way of of looking at the at the post 1945 moment is not only patriarchal, which was overlooked by historians. Yep. Um, yeah. And then the last the last chapter is about Michael Balint. He was a Hungarian-British um, analyst and doctor and the, basically the, the successor, the official successor, you could say, of Sandor Ferenczi. He escaped Hungary and um, and he was quite successful still in Hungary, and then he settled in here in Britain, and um, he became um, one of the central figures of the British psychoanalytic movement in the 50s and 60s. But he was also known for his balling groups. He um, established this um, this this GP um, uh, peer groups, I would say, where he trained GPs to provide. Um, Therapeutic services to to, um, to patients, um, which was something quite new at the time. So the GP was not was 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 the person that was supposed to to deal with physical stuff, but not necessarily with psychological problems or psychosocial problems. Um, but uh, another thing that I'm trying to show in this chapter that he that the model for him was the maternal relationship. He was trying to to convince or to teach GPs to, um, to be a bit of a mother to their patients. Mm -hmm. um, and um, as, as one reviewer of the book wrote, I, was, I thought it was quite funny, said there is something quite queer about, um, about my description of this, um, this male GP's 
in the 50s um, try to be mothers to their patients. <laughs> yes, um, yes, right, exactly. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and so this is, but on the other hand, uh, so I think it's, um, it's, it was a good way for me also to, to conclude the book because I think it's, um, it shows the difference between that moment in the 1950s and 60s and and the, by, by the way the the balling groups became an international thing so and it still exists so you have balling uh, balling groups all over the world you have balling societies in uh, australia and argentina and america and all your uh, all over places um, and they are using similar models and yeah they all theory about how the, the gp should be what you call the um, um the drug doctor so he himself or he or she herself should be the drug that the, the, the patient is looking for when they come to see them very often um but then as i started to say it was a good place for me to conclude because uh, i think it you can see the difference between between that moment where the where the gp was expected to be um, a family doctor and a kind of a community leader, and 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 um, this is how a morally, uh, you know, and a moral authority. This is how uh, Balint encouraged them to. This is what Balint encouraged them to do. And um, the current moment where the where the basically the um, the doctor is a service provider, and we are all customers, right? Yeah. Yes, 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 absolutely, absolutely. And I think, oh, I, I just still am really sitting with that reviewer's comment because I think there were there are moments like this throughout the book, but I think that just stopping to imagine, yeah, these groups of mostly male physicians imagining and trying to trying to work amongst themselves to figure out ways to be more be more motherly and more loving to their patients. And then how that kind of translates out into, you know, conceptions of what the British welfare state ought to be doing and what its relationship to citizens ought to be. Yeah, I think it's, it's I think it is true, but I, the one thing I am, um, I'm also showing in this chapter was that Balin himself who came from a from quite a, you know, he was himself a GP and, and you know, and a doctor and, a, and you know, and probably came from, you know, grew up in, in quite patriarchal institutions, um, had all sorts of contradictions and the, me the message was not clear. So in some places he told them, you must be more motherly, you must be maternal. They, that they are good. patients would, you know, allow the patient to regress in the consulting room, um, allow yourself to be uh, this parental figure to them. But in some other cases, he, he, you know, so that what you know, the balling groups work in a way that um, that um, GPs bring uh, case studies, um, and everyone discuss it. So uh, there is an issue with with the patient who is um, who is very um, who is Christian. Basically, is, um, is, is you know something is practice is is the religious practice um, is is just um, um, wouldn't allow him to follow the the doctor's advice. Mm -hmm. um, and the doctors say the GP says um, you know. 
um, I cannot force him, you know, he's, I cannot, uh, basically, you know, this patient can die if he, if he will keep um, this, um, um, the thing that he's doing. And the, the GP is saying, well, I, you know, at the end of the day, this is the patient's choice, mm. uh, how to live and how to die. And Biden says, no, 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 it's not his choice. It's you, you will tell him, you will, you need, you need to force him, you know better than him. So to be a parent is to be um, to be a loving mother, but also to be kind of a strict father in a sense that kind of that that tells that that knows better than the patient. Um, and he gives the example of how um, how once um, um, I don't remember if it's him or again it's it's a bit uh, we should say to the to everyone that it's a bit uh, that I'm in London and it's a bit late here. Um, <laughs> Yes, yes. So, so, so doing a remarkably amazing, an excellent job. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm, I'm I don't remember some details from my own book, but um, <laughs> but then at some point he says, well, you know, it's like um, um, I don't know if it was him or a colleague who treated um, a girl who tried to um, who who swallow um, pills and tried to to um, and wouldn't open her mouth. You know, to try to um, sorry. Oh, I just am agreeing with you and saying, I remember that. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And what we did, he says, is just at the end, we just give, we just punched her in the face in, for, for in, because she had, we had to find a way to, um, to open her mouth mm. in order to save her. Right. Now, he is right. kind of, um, maybe it, maybe the case, maybe it was necessary, I don't know, but he's celebrating this punch as if, to show to to make a point to the to 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 the um to his you know to, to the GPs that he's trying to train that um, that they should be very assertive and very um kind of the doctor knows best so i think there are both there are, there are these queer queer moments where yes you need to be maternal it's it's um um it's it's a regressive state of you and the patient in the consultative room and you you need to be the loving mother, but then there are other cases where um, where you need to um, to be very um, very strict. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And maybe love is that what love looks like as well? Yeah, well. Yeah. So I think one thing that I did appreciate about the book that has just come out, I think, in some of the examples that you have given, is the way in which you do not shy away from those questions of complexity, nuance, ambiguity, sometimes, uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I do wanna move on though to, well, it's kind of staying on the same line of questioning actually. Um, and it's just thinking about the, about the Society for the History of Children and Youth and thinking about positioning your book um, and its contributions in terms of the history of childhood. There are two more individuals who uh, stuck out to me in the pages of the maternalists, both two girls from who uh, girls in 1950s London. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about them. So one of them, uh, people might, people listening to this uh, interview might be familiar with. One of them, of course, is Carolyn Steedman. And the second one is a Czech girl whose name we don't find out but who had been in Theresienstadt during the Second World War and who was 
uh, who was um, in the 50s living in a hostel in London. So can you tell us a bit about these girls? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, Carolyn Stidman is um, uh, Professor Carolyn Stidman. She's not a girl anymore. Uh, <laughs> I, I would say um, I was, um, I mean, I was quite, um, I was quite influenced by um, by many of her books, mm -hmm. um, but I suppose uh, the one that you um, have in mind is her memoir, A Landscape for a Good, for a good Woman. Yeah. Um, and I think, I mean, this was this was a very a very interesting book for me to read because it really complicated the image that I had on the on the welfare state as as only a source of good for for the city for its citizens um, because and she wouldn't deny it I think that it was a source of good for her mm -hmm. but um, but the thing is that. There was the, the the this this social contract that emerged in, in after 1945 in Britain, um, but actually started before 1945, um, and actually in a sense is the story of all of of all welfare states in the West, yeah. is that um, that the state is taking. Um, on itself, some parental capacities, mm -hmm. um, or even we could say, uh, in a metaphorical way, some maternal capacities, like to care for, um, in some cases, for to to feed its citizens, to provide some meals, some some health services, educational services, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. But um, in those cases. Um, the state also has the um, the privilege um, to be to intervene. So yeah. there is this intervention state, um, which is also the welfare state. Now, as someone who comes from um, from from the from the left, right? Um, I was I didn't take it so seriously. The intervention state, of course. The state is interventionist, right? Why not? It's yeah. it, it's a source for good, and and the state when it when it's when it runs well, the state knows best, right? Like the doctor knows best, mm -hmm. um, and and therefore I kind of um, I was still offended when I looked at this uh, bottle of beer with the nanny state. How they are keep mocking this. Um, um, this 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 welfare state this this project of 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 providing um, of of the state taking the responsibility to um, to make to make the society to make the community fairer how dare they keep taking this project and mocking it right by pre presenting we should say what we didn't say half an hour ago whatever that this um, that, that this nanny state is a, is a non alcoholic beer right. Yes, so, yes, critical. So this is the this yes, the state is will take care of you, but the state will tell you exactly what you are allowed and not allowed to drink. And yes. the state basically, the this nanny state is the place where 
um, is the is the anti libido state. It's going to kill your pleasure in life, right? Yeah. This you're not going to get any fun from drinking this this nanny state beer, right? Because it has no alcohol. What's the point? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so. Um, and I think I learned a lot about this duality of the state by reading uh, Carolyn Stidman's book about how, um, how on the one hand she, you know, she said in that book, but later also in other things that she published that she loved the state because she said, um, I think something like, I love the state because the state loved me, because the state provided her with a lot of opportunities that she couldn't get otherwise. And also because, um, because you know, because she, as she writes, you know, having every day um, um, a glass of milk and orange juice and et cetera, et cetera, um, gave me the, you know, it was a sign for me that, that, that my life, that, that, that I'm important too, right? Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. But, I think that her mother, she had pro obviously quite a, quite a complicated relationship with, mm -hmm. in a sense hated the state because this this glass of milk was a sign that that someone at home couldn't provide something, mm -hmm. so the state needs to step in, right? Yeah. Um. So. So she 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 wasn't she wasn't a socialist right mm -hmm. she was she wasn't a uh, i i don't know as much as i remember again but i think part of the thing she wasn't she was a she was a, a tory walking class right well, absolutely yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. so so this is this is why i found it so fascinating um the the work of kind of the way that um that, that carolyn still framed her her project, her, her memoir, how she told her own story, but also there is something that I, I felt like her project is is to um, is to show those nuances and to um, yes. and to show um, what what was the meaning of 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 living at the time um, for someone who came um, um, for someone with her background. But also with for someone who who managed to um, to make it right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, absolutely. Yeah. So this is this is about um, about Carolyn Stillman about um, this Czech girl. Well, this is the this is probably the most tragic mm. case. In, in this this was one of the cases that the Winnicott supervised, yeah. um, and. Um, uh, so she lost her mother and she had all sorts of relationships with different analysts mm -hmm. um, and she was um, some of them left and she was you know she um she 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 this girl is keep you know she keeps um, losing important people in in her life mm -hmm. um first of all her mother but then there is the um, there is this um this moment where she um where she finds um this um, 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 this guide or whatever this Czech guide in in the hostel, and she got attached to her, and she um, she has this fantasy that they will go back together to to 
to Czech, to the Czech, to the Czechoslovakia, and yeah. she will be like her mother. Um, and um, and it comes at the same time where the, um, there are these those um, uh, celebrations, you know, the coronation of um, of uh, Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. Um, and and then she um, at, the, at, this, at the day the coronation day she refused to celebrate, mm. and um, I am I have a I I am trying to to somehow conclude with in, in the conclusion I discussed this this refusal to to celebrate um, as um, as an as as kind of an act as a as a performative act in which she um, she refused to. Um, to accept um, maternal figures uh, or kind of a symbolic maternal figures uh, or symbolic maternal figures for the for collectives and that uh, at that moment it was the the Brit the, the collective the you know the British collective um, because she wants um, she keep she she's not giving up of the idea that that um, that her mother. Um, Will will that she will find her mother, her real mother, who um, who she she knew by then is not going to it's not going to happen, right? Um, so I I thought that it it you know I felt like I need to um to end the book with 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 a real mother, a, a, a missing mother, but a real one because I am you know the book is. Is not so much about in many cases. It's not so much about real mothers. Yeah. Uh, it's not about the subjectivity. Also, it is not about how, how easy to be a mother in, in you know, in the interwar period and after the war. Um, but very much about um, about images of mothers and and uh, images, you know, collective fantasies about motherhood mm-hmm. and male collective fantasies about the maternal. Um, but I felt that maybe it would be right to. Conclude with one, one girl who lost her mother um, in a constant in you know in Dakar, and and she's still waiting for her to come back. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was just really, really powerful. Mm, thank you. Yeah. So I so I have to say, and you know, we've known each other for a few years now, and I think through you know getting to know about your work, um, and especially having the opportunity to really sit with the with your book in preparation for this interview, it's it's given me a bit of an opportunity to well just to think about psychoanalysis and and history. And I say this as someone who was trained in uh, history departments in Canada and who works in Canada, and there is not a tradition here of historians engaging with psychoanalysis, either really as a subject or as an analytical technique or lens. So I've learned, yeah, I've learned a, a whole lot from your work and also from thinking about it and, and, and reading it alongside stuff like uh, Carolyn Steedman, Landscape for a Good Woman, Sally Alexander's work, um, Michael Roper, uh, and also books like Matthew Thompson's um, Lost Freedom. So there's a really rich tradition of historians working in and writing about Britain using psychoanalysis 
as you say, as a clinical theory, as well as, as a cultural discourse. And so at one point you say that psychoanalysis, therefore it has a major place in any intellectual history of 20th century feminism in general and maternalist movements in particular. So I'm convinced of that, but you've also convinced me that it, this, that this is an, a useful thing for historians of childhood hmm. to engage with and to perhaps think about a little more intentionally. Um, and I think that, you know, you, that in terms of, it has things to offer, just in terms of thinking about what is an adult, what is a child, mm -hmm. what about relationships between generations, family life. So I just wondered if you had any, so for listeners who are interested in the history of young people, but who might not have really thought much about psychoanalysis as an entry point or something that might be worth engaging with. Um, I wondered if you had any words to offer on that front. Um, well, to be honest, this is probably the most difficult question that you asked me so far. Yeah. Um, because, because first of all, because it's a, it's a complicated question to answer, but also because um, I am, um, I hope uh, you are not over convinced because I think it's it's kind of it's it's a diff it's um, I, I'm I think that psychoanalysis and, and history psychoanalysis and historians um, always had this um, this kind of um, love hate relationship mm -hmm. mainly hate by social historians. Yep. But, uh, Those are the but, people who trained me, the people who really hated psychoanalysis. And I would say also kind of, you know, second wave feminism and, yeah. you know, and I think, you know, rightly being uh, unhappy about the mother blaming tendencies of a lot of, yeah. a lot of psychoanalytical literature, as you point out, but sorry, you were, you were saying social historians hate <laughs> or, so, or it's kind of a hate, hate relationship. For example, uh, it was uh, psychoanalysis was used very unwisely for many years by, you know, mainly in the 50s and the 60s, there were many psychobiographies um, who were not always very good, not always were written by historians, but um, so we have, for example, the famous biography of Luther, you know. Oh, uh, Erickson, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of Erickson. Um, and I think it's fascinating that the the latest biography of Luther was written by Lyndall Roper, um, who is one of the who is you know is not only you know maybe one of the most senior medievalists working today, yeah. but also one of the one of the historians who um, who um, who did extensive work uh, with psychoanalysis. Um, and she's writing against those fears of, um, say, of kind of, for example, analyzing uh, the, the medieval period with, uh, with psychoanalytic tool as, as an anachronistic. She said, well, it is to some extent, yeah. um, but so is Marx, you know, it is, but so is Marxism, you know, you, it's, Marx was, was also um, a child of the 19th century, like Freud. Why, why are we so... Um, why why do we assume that he's always relevant? Yeah. Um, and 
so and so I think it's I I, I haven't read uh, her biography of Luther, and I heard that it's not heavily invested in psychoanalysis, but but I think that 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 her picking Luther and writing a biography of him um, is a, is still a statement in a sense, be, uh, regardless of the book itself, which I heard is, is very good. Um, yeah. But um, and then yeah, and then but on the other hand, as you mentioned, um, the group of um, of of um, excellent social cultural historians, but cultural historians who started as social historians, yeah. uh, mainly in Britain, many of them uh, came from like Sally Alexander, like um, um, uh, Barbara Taylor. Mm -hmm. um, they they are they were you know some of them were, were in the leadership of the of, of the feminist movement in the 70s yes. um, and they they still found quite a lot to um to they, they still th i think um i learned from them a lot of how to use psychoanalysis how to think with psychoanalysis i would say yeah. um, when you when you do historical work so I don't think that um, um, I'm quite. I don't think that the psychoanalysis is very useful as as kind of um, as a theoretical tool that you can imply on on each and every case, right? So right. I, I am very much against psychoanalyze, um, you know, specific figure, historical figures. Um, yeah, the young man Luther approach, maybe. Yeah, it's yeah. it's 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 quite vulgar, right, and yeah. quite uh, quite ridiculous in many cases. But also, if you, but also, I mean, if you take, if if you, you know, some of the the more sophisticated um, tools, the, the the ways I would say, more sophisticated ways to use psychoanalysis, um, you know, when you when you take some. Um, um some um some critical theorists like um like you know like post post structuralists like Derrida like um like um uh, Althusser, like um, uh, like Zizek, like others I also think you need to do it very carefully because sometimes those those kind of for example Lacanian um analysis of everything is 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 always over convincing or or it explains too much, but so I'm, I, what I'm trying to say is that I, I actually think that um, that historians need to be very cautious when um, when they use psychoanalysis. But in a way, it's quite helpful for for historians, I would say, to read psychoanalysis, and it's quite helpful to think of um, to 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 um, to think of um, of you know to to use psychoanalytic literature. In order to, um, um, to to try to imagine what um, uh, how 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 people understood themselves in the past, what kind of subjectivities um, could be produced in, in different times in different places, and also to um, to think of some um, of some universal elements and transhistorical elements. Um, which is something that that historians are reluctant to do, and for good reasons, right? Yeah. But I think that um, 
that I don't think it's it's um, uh, the, I, I think it's quite useful to think of to to acknowledge that that people in in many different ages and times and places had forms of fantasy, right, or have forms of anxiety, right. Yes. So maybe you can call it differently, or you can define it differently, but it's, it's still there is some elements which are transhistorical, and I think that psychoanalysis has a lot to offer in, in understanding those, mm. um, those moments, right? Yeah. So I don't know if, I don't think I really answer your question, but- oh, I, uh, I, think you, I think you absolutely- But, but I, maybe I send you to some references or, you know, the, yes. or the, or the listener, oh, yes. yeah. I would be thankful for a bibliography and maybe we can include some of those um, in the post when this eventually gets shared. And I okay. think that just what you were saying about fantasy and, ways to get at that psychoanalysis that if used carefully can be a way to get at some issues that we might not have access to otherwise. Um, I think it's also if we want to try to understand the 20th century broadly construed, we need to yeah. reckon with it. Um, but I at one point, and I can't remember in which chapter, you say something about, and it might be about when you're talking about the balant groups that uh, that there's lot, you know, there is this big and growing historiography about emotions now. But one of the things that you are tracing is uh, kind of a history of of emotions that people did not experience but wish they had experienced. Yeah. And I think that there's also some really rich stuff here. Um, future areas to be, future seems to be mined potentially. Um, that yeah, that are throughout this manuscript, but I'm also yeah. looking. I'm this is something that um, that you've written quite quite a bit about about emotions and childhood and um, and um, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Excellent uh, edit volume that you that you edited. So so yeah, yeah. I can see that there. I think that yeah, you're, you've given me more things to think about there as well. And so I'm I've kept you up very late. I'm afraid, and you've done remark. Yeah, yeah, you've done amazingly well. And I think I want to ask you one final question that has to that I know has to do with emotions, and that is, uh, what are you working on now? Mm, okay. Um, yeah. So this is the question that everyone, you know, uh, it's like those questions of when you do a PhD. How is your PhD going? You know. Yeah, I'm um, sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just want to add something to your previous question. Actually, I think that it is that you actually answer it. I mean, I, I, I was focusing too much about how to use psychoanalysis as a, as a theoretical tool, but I think that it is important to, um, especially to the listener of this podcast, to, um, to I think for me at least, you cannot really understand. Um, I don't know. You, you know. You cannot understand what childhood is in in um, in in 1950s New York without understanding, uh, without knowing a bit psychoanalysis, right? This is this this was a this was the language that con that constructed the idea of childhood at at that time, right? Yes. And this is true also to um, to large parts of um, of of the second half of um, um, of the 20th century in Latin America, right? In Argentina and Brazil, when psychoanalysis was very strong 
um, Paris, um, anthropo you know, anthropology, anthropologists a bit like historians, they, they try to, um, to distance themselves very often from psychoanalysis, but it doesn't always work for them. They are, it, it, it influences um, quite a lot of their work. And we know that how anthropology was important in, in, you know, in shaping perceptions of childhood um, as, 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 you know, as I also discussed in the book. So yeah, so I so you need to be as I said. I think we need to be cautious when we use psychoanalysis as kind of as um, as explanatory framework. Yeah. Um, but all but I I think that um, that historians of childhood should should visit much more um, psychoanalytic archives, mm. um, and even if they are coming from a critical point of view of psychoanalysis they 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 this is where they can understand some of the um, some of the ingredients from which 20th century's childhood was you know um, this is these are the ingredients for for um, children's subjectivity in the 20th century so yeah so I felt like I should kind of uh, I should say that um and um i thought maybe you will say now that okay we don't have enough time now so uh, we can't hear <laughs> um can hear what is your next project um i'm quite interested in emotions um yeah. as a it's it's a kind of a shift it's people may think that it's um that it is directly related to psychoanalysis but it's not because Partly because um, the, this uh, revival of interest in in uh, emotions in the last three or four decades um, was, I would argue, um, um, was accompanied by um, by sidelining psychoanalysis and arguing that actually, rather than talking about psychoanalysis, or one way of um, of dismissing psychoanalysis is to talk um, to to use other ways to understand emotions. And also to say that psychoanalysis actually, or Freud, didn't have much to say about emotions. It is debatable, but but there is a case to make about it. Um, but actually, I am I'm 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 not necessarily. I, I agree. I, I'm not. I I'm still interested in psychoanalysis, but but my new line of thinking is. Um, is not psychoanalytic uh, per se, and um, I am interested in, um, in in negative emotions, mm -hmm. and and um, and especially I'm interested in um, in one emotion which I think is is kind of overlooked, which is self hatred, mm -hmm. um, and I think that uh, self hatred is um, is very much. Um, Kind of a shadow emotion of of um, as I call it the shadow emotion of narcissism. Everyone are talking about narcissism, but um, but people don't talk about self-hatred, and it's actually an illeg illegitimate emotion. People are not allowed to talk about it, mm -hmm. uh, although it's a very it's a very strong um, concept in debates of uh, activists or, or people who are arguing with each other. Um, with uh, with things that related to identity politics. So, for example, 
uh, one way for me to 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 shut you up would be if we argue about feminism is to tell you Christine um, uh, you are how can you how could you say that you are a self-hating feminist or you are self you are a self-hating woman or something like that and then we will stop talking about it and um, I'm interested in in actually in self-hatred um, in um, in Jewish self-hatred which is um, which is a concept that very dominant in debates of Zionist and non-Zionist um, or critics of Israel who accuse each other in, um, in self-hatred or, or in, in this discourse it sometimes go with self-antisemitism um, and the way that um, it, it is now explained and I realize it by, by from my students you know I realize how common it is um, um, how this concept is common in my, um, in my students' everyday language is by, um, by the concept of internalization. Mm. So, um, so obviously you are a self-hating feminist, Christine, because you internalized uh, patriarchal values or whatever. Now, I'm interested in the, here we go back to psychoanalysis because I'm interested in the history of internalization. Mm -hmm. um, but also, I'm kind of, I want to ask a question of how useful this concept is, or because it, it, doesn't, it doesn't explain much, right? Mm -hmm. um, I want to know more of how did you internalize self, you know, uh, this self-hatred or et cetera, et cetera, um, how it is all related to, um, to debates over identity politics. It is this this uh, this concept of internalization is very strong in um, in in you know in discussions and in identitarian discourses. Um, it goes together with um, I mean the the cousin, the most successful cousin of self hatred, the one that you are allowed to talk about, is um, you know this talk about positivity. Mm -hmm. um, so everyone, it's because we, for example, we um, uh, we internalize some body images from the from the social media, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, that um, that created all sorts of eating disorders, and uh, you know we don't, we are not eating well, we are in diet. So so the kind of the the backlash is is that we we must be more positive about our body, about our um, you know everyone. Are, a body positive or sex positive or, yeah. you know but but actually i want to i want to ask questions about why why we are not allowed to talk about our self-hatred sometimes or the places that we don't like ourselves and why is it such a such an illegitimate why we need to embrace our identity all the time and celebrate it in a sense mm -hmm. um, so probably you you get a fuller answer than you ask. <laughs> a full answer is exactly what I was hoping for. Yeah. Uh, and you delivered. So thank you very much, Shal. I think that uh, this, I think I'm going to sign off on behalf of both of us. Um, yeah. Thank so you. Thank you very much. It was, it was great talking to you, Christine. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. S-H-C-Y 
www.thepeopleofgod.org.